Real life superpowers. Whether it's because you're drawn to computer science and programming, or um, <clears throat> or because you end up in that career, um, there's a certain there. Uh, I mean that that job is all about problem solving. For for people who are called to that sort of work, there's nothing more stimulating and engaging than spending 36 hours trying to find a bug and feeling like it's kind of you against the machine to figure out what's going on. Hello, hello. In this special episode, we speak with David Benjamin, the co-author of Cracking Complexity, the breakthrough formula for solving just about anything fast. In the book, him and his co-author, David Komlas, share their proven formula for dramatically shortening the process and cracking an organization's toughest challenges. Their formula has been really put to the test over the past few months of the new reality of COVID-19, which makes this episode ever so more interesting. In regular days, David guides leaders and their teams through their application of the formula. This capacity has become a trusted advisor to Fortune 500 companies and U.S. government leaders on how to organize for complexity and find traction in the face of the intractable. I think anybody who is faced with decisions in life, which uh, who doesn't really, would find this episode super insightful. Hope you enjoy your listen. Real Life Superpowers So, David, welcome to Real Life Superpowers. Thank you. I got to say, I have a conspiracy theory. I'm thinking that you just might be the person behind COVID-19. <laughs> Why is that? Because your book, Dealing with Complexity and Helping Leaders in uh, Difficult Circumstances, has come out uh, basically at the peak of COVID, right? Well, in fact, it's been on the market for a year, but... Um... And that's because complexity is complexity and it's existed for a very long time. But certainly this year and as we've, uh, you know, encountered the pandemic over the last few months, it's been very much more timely than we expected when we published. And how are book sales? Like, did, they, did you suddenly feel the impact? Uh, no, um, they've been kind of slow and steady. Uh, the book got some traction at the beginning and we've just sort of been out there speaking and publishing you know our customer base we've been using the book as a business card often in terms of just sort of opening the door to a conversation you know not that we've heard in terms of any kind of peak over the last few weeks it wouldn't surprise me but we haven't heard that okay okay and like how did you end up writing this book was it like to be a business card or did you have uh, a really strong message to share I guess like also both as as Uh, probably a relevant combination. Yeah, I think personally and selfishly, this is something that sort of we always wanted to do, David Komlos and I, my business partner and co-author. I'd say that we felt we had an obligation to make some noise about what we were doing and um, how to approach really important business imperatives like developing strategy and executing on key plans and key projects. Uh, we feel that we have a, a way that is better, faster, stronger, than sort of traditional approaches and, and felt an obligation to, to let people know that and to give them an alternative to, for example, traditional consulting. What was the first thing you did? Like when you start a book, what do you do? Uh, well, interestingly, because we were writing about something that we've been doing for so long. So personally, we've been working very actively 
with the formula that we talk about in the book since 2002. Um, I feel like the book was mostly written before we sat down to write it. It, it was very much in my head. Um, the stories we wanted to tell, the uh, insights we have, the steps in the formula. So I remember um, just as we were getting started, I was describing to David Comlos how I felt like uh, a hockey player. I'm a Canadian, so of course I use a hockey analogy. Standing on the bench, pounding a stick, just waiting to get out there on the ice. I knew there was a story to tell. I, we could tell kind of the structure of the story we wanted to tell. And it was just a matter of just putting pen to paper and, and letting it come. It was, it was there for the taking. And how did this formula evolve? Did it come out of a personal pain? Um, or did you work with organizations and, and, and sort of structure it through experience? Yeah, we, um, we acquired the rights to a methodology back in the early 2000s, um, which if you sort of look at the 10-step formula, three of the steps, seven, eight, and nine, really reflect that methodology. Um, but we were bringing something that was very different to market. Uh, we were dealing at a time when, when complexity wasn't part of every executive's lexicon. It was something that sounded as abstract as systems. Um, so we really had to kind of create a market. And as we started to work with some of the companies that, um, you know, could hear the music early on, we um, got to sort of apply the methodology as we inherited it and then enrich it and expand it and sort of localize it to the American market, which is very different, very different from Europe, where the method um, was first being used kind of in the late uh, 1990s. And, and how did you find out about that method? Well, it's, it's interesting. Uh, David Komlos and I had both been working in a, in a company kind of riding the dot-com wave in the late 90s. And um, my father and his business partner knew uh, Stafford Beer, who was the inventor of this methodology, um, and were helping him trying to make his way to North America. So when David and I, um, you know, were part of a series of acquisitions that ultimately um, collapsed a whole bunch of businesses. We found ourselves uh, without work, and uh, I went and took a job to feed kind of my young family. And David went out to uh, do what entrepreneurs do and look for his next thing instead of jumping into something. And um, started speaking to my father and and his business partner. Got introduced to Stafford Beer and this methodology. And uh, he came knocking on my door, sort of a year later, and showed me what he'd found. And he had done some due diligence. Um, and I was so excited by it and so drawn to it that I literally gave notice the day that he uh, showed it to me and <clears throat> started working with him the following Monday. Wow. Like, what was it about it that seemed so appealing? Well, I'm a mathematician, um, computer scientist, got a very logical brain. I like puzzles. And what he showed me was... Um, some geometric shapes that are used as a network architecture for what we do, a way of organizing people so that they're optimally connected to each other. And I just saw that and said, yeah, that makes complete sense. And it's sort of in the realm of Buckminster Fuller and Buckyballs uh, geodesic domes, which are sort of optimally connected and balance tension and compression so that you can, you can sort of build buildings that are bigger and stronger. If you've seen a geodesic dome, you know they're kind of lighter, bigger, stronger than traditional architecture. So this same kind of thinking was being applied to how you organize human groups um, to think together and to solve things together. And as I said, it just made perfect sense to me that that would work. Um, and, uh, and again, the, the, the whole space helping people solve problems 
Um, solving problems, figuring out puzzles is something that's always attracted me again as sort of a mathematician and computer scientist. Like where, where did you find out that that's what you loved? And how do you know that solving pro uh, problems with human beings work on the long run? Like how do you test that out? Well, I mean, again, we're, we're helping organizations, we're helping leaders deal with their problems um, almost whenever we do this. So it's really a matter of hearing what they tell us afterwards. And um, what they'll tell us is when they apply the formula, they, they get great solutions, very good solutions, uh, maybe better than they would have otherwise, maybe not, but they get them in days or weeks. And what they characterize as the most important thing is that there's a critical mass of people who've kind of co-created those solutions and are um, really eager to, to make it work and make it happen. So execution is um, far greater than what they experience when they do sort of the traditional 18-month consulting project, and it's faster and it's cheaper. So we hear from them about their successes. Uh, we keep in touch with them over the years, and they'll still refer back to the work they did as a turning point kind of three years later. But David and I have never really been satisfied with that. And we decided, you know, more recently that we need to be using the, the formula more on ourselves and some of the key, uh, sorry, key business decisions we were making. So, for example, when we wrote the book, the last thing we did before publishing the book was put it through the formula with a group of people and invite them to, to give us the critique and edits and changes that they suggested. And, and it worked. It uh, it created a book we thought that was much better, and we, we made those improvements over the course of a few weeks. These are brilliant people, you know, big companies. And, and, and you know, you think that they would know how to find these problems and think of different solutions, maybe not the best solutions like you, you think of, but, like, how do you explain that? Uh, we've had it explained to us a little bit because we're always curious about that as well. Um, we know that the, the formula does something very powerful, which is, again, to get a large group of people really aligned and mobilized around an answer that they've created. And when, when they've created it, they believe in it. And, uh, you know, nobody likes to be wrong either. So once people have said that that's the solution that's going to work for us, um, they work like hell to make sure that it does work, uh, you know, to prove themselves right. Um, so we have been told that, for example, in a, in a very large, large company with a strong reputation for innovation, what we thought was the benefit of this formula is what I just described, but what we were told by one of the executives is that sort of their Achilles heel is how smart they are, how many smart people they have in that executive um, you know, boardroom table when, when they're trying to figure anything out. And because they have so many smart people, they can't decide anything quickly. Everybody's got a strong opinion. Everybody's right. Everybody's smart. So it takes them a very long time to um, land a solution. It's not that they, they can't do it, and it's not that several of them might have the, the right solution. It's kind of convincing each other about what needs to be done. So we were told the value proposition for them when they work with us is the speed at which we force those people through the process of making a decision. We, we do that in days, three days with them. And normally he said that would take us six months. And, and maybe the objectivity as well. Because, you know, there's political dynamics and, you know, you have to give the ex ex executives, you know, the, the respect. And when you come, you're like an objective. Is, is that, does that have anything to do with it? Yeah, I think that's really key. We, we are completely neutral. Um, we don't come with a point of view. And we'll often tell uh, the people we work with, 
you know, your people are the experts. We're not the experts. And, and they're used to the experts coming in who know their industry, know their problem type and, you know, do the research and then tell them what to do. Uh, we say that's not us. Um, your people are the experts. The talent in and around your organization, they know the answers. <clears throat> but what what you're not good at that we're good at is getting all those people together and, and uh, figuring out the answers quickly and effectively. And what's the biggest challenge to implementing? Because these are people, right? And you're 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 a tech guy, right? So I'm interested. It's really easy to implement on a computer, right? But people are people. So like, what what was the biggest challenge in implementation? Well, again, as you just said, as a computer programmer, you know, I understand that when you're trying to uh, have a computer do something, it's a matter of giving it a set of instructions, and it will follow those instructions. Um, so that's kind of what we call a complicated problem. It's a it's a completely deterministic system. Um, getting a computer to calculate something that's a complicated problem because you just have to go through a series of steps to get to an answer. Human groups are anything but deterministic. The dynamics are very complex. A lot of moving parts, a lot of opinions, a lot of sort of personalities and uh, styles to deal with. And so that's why you need a formula that will sort of systematically uh, break people down, bring them together, um, align them and unify them on a set of answers they believe in. Um, and it really is like, it's not us. It's, it's, a, it's a formula. It's, a, it's almost an equation that we execute um, with a large group, an algorithm that we run that takes them from point A to point B systematically. And do you have to do a lot of convincing to get them to even spend time trying to align to this formula? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the convincing is really with the sponsor at the beginning, because what we say sounds too good to be true. And um, it's, it's really only in their conversations with people who've done it before that they start to believe that, hey, you know, maybe this will work. I'll give it a try. Once we get people there, one of the things I've learned in terms of, I don't know if I'd call this a superpower or not, but it's very powerful to tell somebody ahead of time that it's okay if they're cynical, if, if you know, to encourage them to disbelieve that this is going to work to tell them to embrace whatever they're feeling because that's the right way to feel. Very powerful, it, it, um, it gets past their defenses. Um, we tell them, you know what, give us, give us this first day, trust the process we're gonna put in front of you. By the end of the day, I can tell you, you're gonna feel frustrated. You're gonna feel like a lot of things were surfaced and that we didn't make much progress. Um, and that's gonna be okay because that's where you should be at the end of day one of what we do. And by telling them that in advance, you're actually at the same time building confidence. You know, at the same time that they're frustrated or concerned, they also feel like they're in good hands and somebody who knows what they're doing. It's interesting you said superpower because I want to backtrack for a second because um, what's really interesting about everything you do, um, if you look at it from a higher level, everybody has, even day-to-day, -day, not even organizations, the world today is a lot more complex because there's a lot more information and opportunities. Okay. And you said you loved puzzles and, and finding them out. And what's interesting is that's probably, that's me thinking because that's what you told. Um, if you know how to solve complex puzzles, that means actually that the output is you're a good decision maker, right? So um, I'm trying to understand right now, when you solve uh, puzzles, like you probably evolved from a child later on and found like different ways to think. Is there something like a uh, 
um, something that you can analyze internally to say, okay, this is why a complex idea is very simple output for me? Yeah, I, I am pretty sure, um, and I've seen this with a few other people, that whether it's because you're drawn to computer science and programming or um, <clears throat> or because you end up in that career, um, there's a certain there, uh, I mean, that that job is all about problem solving for for people who are called to that sort of work. There's nothing more stimulating and engaging than spending 36 hours trying to find a bug and feeling like it's kind of you against the machine to figure out what's going on. And and I've always uh, you know, I have a father who who always loved very difficult uh, cryptic crossword puzzles, which are which include puns and anagrams and everything else. So as a child, I was always sort of by his side, um, learning to think that way and learning to kind of approach problems with a different lens, um, to expect the unexpected, to, to trust that as you stare at something and think about it for a long time, something is going to emerge. Uh, answers don't just come the first time you try. It's about the perseverance of, of really digging in and committing yourself to finding an answer and then trusting that it will come, trusting that your brain is, is far more active and creative than even you give it credit for if you kind of give it the time to marinate in a problem. So like, this, this is really interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, I, once I talked to a, a known, well-known uh, data scientist and when I asked him a similar question, she said, I'm actually not good at analyzing information, but I'm really good at asking questions. So I'm wondering, um, like, the idea is knowing what to ask to get to what you're solving, or is it more solving the puzzle in front of you? Yeah, that's a that's a great comment. Because um, because sometimes it's it's obvious what you're solving, and you know, if I use the example of a crossword puzzle, you don't have to ask yourself, okay, what's the task here? You know what the task is. Um, but when we talk about the formula, the the second step in the formula is actually about formulating the right question. It's very important that um, as soon as you're trying to solve something with someone else in particular, that you be aligned on what it is that you're trying to solve. Because I've seen far too many times when people think they're speaking the same language and going after the solution to the same problem, and they're not. They just haven't sort of articulated the problem to each other. So that second step in the formula is about writing a really good question that makes it clear what you're trying to solve for, makes it exciting to solve for it. So... I think as an externalized process, when you're working with several people, that's a really important step to formulate the question. And even I think when you're sitting alone and trying to figure some something out, a good a good way to kind of retreat from the churn of trying to solve is to ask yourself, what is the question I'm trying to answer here? And confirm with yourself that you know what that is. On that sense, so when you started with the crossword, <laughs> the cryptic crossword puzzles, which I'm really intrigued to see one because I don't know what a cryptic uh, crossword puzzle is and I'm also Canadian, so I probably read the same papers as you did. So, <laughs> Globe and Mail has one every uh, every day. Okay, okay, <laughs> it's probably my dad thing. He wasn't interested in in, in that at all. But on the dad side, was it what, like did you feel you were good at it, or was it fun for your dad to do it with you because he was good at it? Did you get good feedback? Like, how did you how did you get that thing that you got passionate about it, or was it a natural thing like you saw it and you or like fell in love with it in the same second? Yeah, that's hard to remember. I'd say part of it is anything that you do with your dad, whether you're throwing a baseball or uh, or sitting and reading or whatever it is, um, you know, you're you're sitting with your role model and and uh, and that role model is doing something and you want to you want to be capable of doing the same thing. But 
there was also this element of these really interesting puzzles. And again, if you if you ever look at a cryptic crossword, a good one, and and I think they're British in origin, so they're very very twisted kind of puzzles, and every question is different. You might be looking for a pun or an anagram or or all sorts of other um, crazy things. It just bends your mind, and if you're if you go into that expecting you know what the pattern is that you're looking for, you won't see the pattern. But if, if you somehow just kind of soften your expectations and create the conditions for something to pop that you're not expecting, to me, that's the key. So you, you don't know what lens you have on until something starts to emerge for you. There's some really good books that have been written about breakthrough thinking. And a lot of it is sort of retreating from, from false starts and trying to set aside your biases and your assumptions as you kind of look for something, something magic happens in your brain. It just pops. Okay. So that passion, but that's really obvious why, why, you know, starting out on the tech side, but then I'm intrigued because, um, from my experience, um, uh, I, I noticed that like, you know, there's, there's a differentiation between someone who's very tech oriented and business oriented. And I know you say to yourself, you're not a business oriented person, but that's impossible. <laughs> because uh, because you have that attribute as well. But I'm wondering if I'm a tech person out there, okay, and an entrepreneur that's on the tech side, and I want to move that scope to, you know, something where you are, taking those tech capabilities, but putting it into a human process and not into a UI or SaaS or anything else, okay? What would you advise to them to go there because they all would feel uh, self-conscious actually getting out of their comfort zone, right? Yeah, I I would say that first of all, if you're not passionate about something, and if you don't if you don't believe it's going to work, I, I you've probably heard this said a hundred times before. It's completely true. If you don't have passion for it, if it's not fun, um, if you don't believe in it, then I think you're going to spin your wheels for a long time trying to convince other people. Um, so first of all, sort of make sure that what you're doing, what you're thinking about doing, is something that you could do for the rest of your life and and be happy. Um, I like to think about the things that you know, when you're doing them, you don't notice the passage of time. So it's different for everybody, but for me, it was reading um, and solving problems You know, where I'd look up and when I was in university uh, working on programming assignments, I'd look up and it'd be 3 a.m. and I'd been working on it since eight and I hadn't noticed and I hadn't eaten and I hadn't had anything to drink. And, and when you find that thing, like if you can find that in your work, in, in the thing you're trying to bring to market, in the business you're trying to start, you've got fantastic chance for success as, as far as I'm concerned. But it's very hard to engineer success. It really is about sort of, um, I, I like to think of planting things in my head, um, putting the pieces together later, but, but noticing the individual components as you go, things you want, things you see things you observe um, and, and trusting again that as, as you begin to put the pieces together, things are going to coalesce around, around the real answers. So again, it's being very fluid in your thinking, not trying to, not uh, being very patient about emergence. Um, the best way I can kind of describe it, I don't know if you, um, there are these patterns on a page and you, you have to stare at them. Um, you know what I'm talking about? And there's a technique to staring at them. And, and if you try to force it, you can't possibly see the image. You have to just relax your eyes and sort of set aside what you think you're looking at. And then a, an image will suddenly emerge for you. It, to me, that's, that's what navigating, you know, an entrepreneurial exercise is like. You, you got to 
kind of let it come and trust that you'll see it when it's ready to be seen. And sort of something almost spiritual about making silencing stuff, silencing a bit of thoughts down and letting stuff, some deeper wisdom surface. And you were also talking about geomet- geometrical shapes and formulating this. And it doesn't sound like a formula from an angle of sheer math. It sounds like formulating something uh, to be more connected to deeper roots and deeper wisdoms so that people can sort of connect through uh, a more common ground. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it's funny, you just gave me a different way to think about our formula. I think the formula is really all about systematically taking the right group of people and, um, you know, quiescing their thoughts, uh, giving, like letting them set everything aside and sort of find, as you were just characterizing it, you know, that quiet thinking space where, in fact, they can do it together and have the experience of emergence of something that they all see and believe. But again, not by forcing it, by sort of step-by-step making your way towards it. Um, I, I kind of like thinking about it that way. I think sort of letting go and tapping into some sort of collective wisdom when people stop hanging on to their opinion and sort of ease back into something maybe bigger than themselves It's yeah. just like your brain waves, you know, there's brain waves that, that are different when you're relaxed. Uh, and, and when you're relaxed, you also become more creative. So I think maybe through your formula, you're sort of helping people tap into that. Yeah, you know, quick story, a quick analogy. I, I don't know if you've seen or, or participated in dragon boating, but these long boats with um, a whole bunch of people on them and a drummer beating a drum. One of us. Um, one of you has. Okay, so, I mean, that was an amazing experience for me. I, I did it with the office one year. And, you know, you, you have to go from being an individual rower to, to sort of setting aside your individuality when you're, when you're on that boat um, and falling into a rhythm with the entire team. And we weren't particularly good, uh, you know, through, throughout our training as a team. But as we got into the competition, we actually got a drummer sitting at the front. And as that drummer gave you the drum beat, um, it really made it much easier to fall into a pattern with everyone else, not notice your surroundings anymore, just kind of feel part of a collective that was, that was focused on a goal. And sort of, sort of, I remember the experience of looking up when we crossed the finish line and realizing we had won a race when all the way through training we never had. And it was, the, the difference was having a drum beat that we were all focused on. Um, and giving ourselves over to that is very powerful. And I, I'd say, yeah, I'd say we, we try to do that systematically with groups as they think through challenges. That's, I, I can really relate to that. And I read this really amazing book. Maybe you've read it, uh, Stealing Fire by Stephen Kotler. And I think Jamie Wheel, I'm probably not saying his name right. Uh, and they discuss a lot the topic of group flow and how when groups tap into that flow together, and it happens a lot in extreme sports, then it's, it's something to the verge of magic that happens. Because, you know, there's zero room for mistakes. And that's like a really interesting experiment to see how people can collaborate when there's no room for mistakes and each are sort of accountable to each other. And when they're all into that same state of flow, the, the, the human performance that's the outcome of such experiences is fantastic. And it really seems like you're translating this into leadership and I'll say boardrooms. But, but sorry, but just one thing, that's like the destination because on that boat, what happens is the interests are in line. You have a collective goal, right? 
So you, that's easy to get in the flow when you have a collective goal. We're all trying to get to this destination and do it as best as possible. And then you have the drum beater, which is giving the, the let's say, the, the, uh, uh, the collective feeling of getting to the success. And what you said before about an entrepreneur putting them together, uh, I just want to get stung on that for a second because, you know, Steve Jobs said that oppositely when he uh, uh, talked to college students, he said, in hindsight, um, getting out of school and doing the fonts will help me make that company. But probably he had not that certain plan, but he collected those things because he knew we were like uh, a larger destination. Connecting the dots. And then if I'm putting it into the context of what you're doing, and this is more of a question, sorry, I'm uh, uh, talking as yeah. factual. But um, what I'm interested is, I think that putting putting like... Part of what you're doing is that not you know you know already the solution um, uh, or the area of solution, and you want them to go through the whole journey so that they can explain to themselves that they're in the right place and they made that decision together, and then they can go and row that dragon boat together with the drumbeat. Am I correct? Yeah, I think so. I, again, you, you give them the right goal. Yeah. And again, we talk about a, a really good question it includes a, an aspirational goal of some sort and you, you bring all the right people together. We, we talk about the right variety of people and, and we really mean an aggressive search for the right variety of people, not just kind of following in, into the patterns of involving the same old people, you know, the entire executive team, all the directors, whatever that is just really like, what's the right variety of people who need to be put into this boat if we're going to make it to that goal. Um, and then having done that, you know, with, with sort of clarity on what that goal is, because people are people and, and they're so complex, uh, you have to kind of give them time and direction on how to, how to sort of let go <clears throat> and, and let something emerge. Because, and again, this is where iteration kind of drives emergence. You can't, you can't do that all in one step. You have to work them through a problem set and and a set of discussions that that they know are the right discussions. You have to work them through it three times so that they have a chance to unload because nobody's ready to think while they're frustrated. You've got to let them tell their stories. Then you have to get them to ideate. And then only then, you know, is, is the pump primed for them to, for them to solve. And so there's this, there's this union of art and, and science to this. Um, and, and I think again, if you, I've got a very big creative streak. I'm not just um, somebody who who's a logical thinker and a programmer. Um, I also like to write and I also like to create. And it's finding that blend of, of the science and the art that uh, I think really, at least for me, has led to success. It sounds like it's the ultimate intersection because otherwise you're yeah. sort of shutting off one thing that's very natural. Yeah, and I think people make the mistake of trying to turn off their creative urges so that they can focus on business when, when I, you know, you can find a lot of success by, by finding the union instead of uh, treating them as two separate things. And probably the best businesses are the ones that are actually creative in some form or other. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, otherwise you're kind of just doing a me too copycat. And, and again, there's, there's a lot of success you can have if you're looking for financial success um, in doing something that's already been done and doing it better um, for me, I wouldn't feel just satisfied with, with only that. Yeah. Cause it sounds like you're really trying to tap into something that's, uh, that's sort of has a higher meaning and get people to get 
to become their best version. Like I'm, I'm sort of feeling like this episode is a bit of a meta episode because we're trying to tap into the, uh, the people's formula for getting to peak performance and becoming the best versions of their, themselves. And in a sense, that's exactly what you've made your mission to help people yeah. tap into their uh, best selves and how to make decisions based on uh, peak performance, if, if, I'm just, if I'm understanding correctly. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't say it's ironic, but to, to kind of find your best self, I think it's really essential that you listen to others with a lot of curiosity and a lot of open-mindedness. Um, everybody's walking around having figured out little bits and pieces of life that maybe you haven't figured out for yourself. And you can get into conversations with people and discover things about yourself if you're listening really carefully to what they're saying and what their personal insights have been. Um, if you really, as, as I do, if you really believe in people and that people are generally good and smart and want good outcomes, uh, you, you can learn a lot if you can shut yourself up and um, really connect yourself to what somebody is saying and ask questions and dig in as the two of you are doing. The answers are there. People. So again, in, in personal life as well, you're surrounded by a variety of people who see things differently and who see you differently. Talk to them about, about you and about your journey and you'll get a lot of insights. So like, do you have, I mean, I know everything is in the book and I don't want to spoil, uh, but maybe if you can sort of give us a taste of this. So Uh, even in, as an example of a personal life situation, like what would you suggest to somebody who is uh, trying to figure something out in their lives? Um, like what steps, according to well, the formula, should yeah. the person take? Um, start with a question. Write a really, really good question that you're trying to answer. And, and I don't mean sort of jot one down. Think about it. Have, it. have it down on your table for a few days and keep looking at it and The question should be exciting to you. It should be challenging to you. It should have a goal. Um, it should be ambitious. If, you know, if you get the question right, it should be uh, something you're very excited to answer and very scared to answer because it seems so daunting. And then sort of the next step is think about who in your life can help you inform the answer to the question you've written. And what's, what's that crazy mix of people who would all see the question differently and give you different sides to the answer. Um, so that would include family and maybe spiritual, you know, leaders that, that you interact with, maybe business people that you respect and a, a professor from university who you revered um, friends and, and people who have always been blockers for you and cynics, you know, are just as important because they have, important insights to tap into as well. And you get that, think about who that variety of people is. Engage them in your question. Um, and, you know, ask them first to think about what are kind of the topics that I need to answer for myself if I'm going to find answers to my question. This is, I'm kind of up to, up to um, step six at this point. What's, what's, what's the stuff I should be reading? What's the stimulus I should expose myself to? Um, and, uh, and, and again, depending on the number of people, like talk, talk to them individually or in groups, iterate with them several times as you go through your journey and open yourself to, up to whatever emerges. Don't, don't try to force an answer. Okay. So it's a lot of really honest reflection and feedback. 
Yeah, and giving yourself time. Time is so important. I don't know if you have kids. Yeah, both do. I certainly learned with kids that, you know, if you want to convince them of something, it's not going to take one iteration, right? In fact, they have to convince themselves. And so they need time to sort of um, let go of what they thought they knew and, you know, at the same time, find a way to save face. Um, and, and, and so like over the course of a few days, you can, you can sway your kids to do things. You can work with your kids to figure things out. But if you try to sit them down and tell them it doesn't work. And, and that's sort of the equivalent, I think, of working with teams. Yeah. That's like, I'm, I'm just, that really leads me to my next question. Cause I'm thinking like a lot of people and a lot of organize, organizations that I work with, um, there's, a recurring issue of uh, team members who have a lot of good ideas and initiatives, but they sort of stumble into very strong resistance and not, not real uh, willingness um, to listen and adopt any sort of change, uh, which is understandable because at the end of the day, uh, management have their own anxieties and are afraid of change and need to be convinced. And it's a sort of endless loop that doesn't yield uh progress and mm -hmm. i'm sort of thinking what would you suggest in such a situation either to uh a junior in an organization uh trying to push forward an idea and also maybe just in general like how can a group uh or, or a startup sort of become more open when some people within the group are just like very uh very stubborn yeah And again, without sort of applying the full formula, um, it, it's, hard to, it's hard to get people into an environment where they understand that, that they're there to collectively solve something and that they should set aside, you know, what they believe, what they know, they know where, you know, again, if you get them into a, a proper setup, And encourage their resistance as a form of contribution not necessarily resistance but um, make them a critic so we use behavioral roles as an example when we're in meetings and so you can set up a, a meeting of nine people and have six people be members of, of the meeting who are tasked with answering a question or figuring something out and those six people you know collectively are there to kind of talk something through and find answers but take the other three people And rather than making a group of nine people who are all equally members, make those three people critics. And when they are critics, what they have to do is listen to the six members talk for 10 or 15 minutes. And they're not allowed to say a word during that time. But the, at the end of that 10 or 15 minutes, tell them you're going to give them the floor. And you're going to give them one minute each to critique what's going on in front of them in terms of the members' conversation, what they're talking about, how they're talking about. Hear their critique, force the members to listen to it without responding. Hear their critique, then ask them to be silent again and go back to the members. And you'll see the members start to evolve their thinking based on the feedback they just got. Um, do that again, 10 or 15 minutes more conversation, back to the critics a second time. And when you set up a meeting that way, you change the natural habits and, and behaviors of people. So if you take that cynical person who's just naturally resistant and put them at the table and ask them to, to be creative and constructive with the rest of the group and hear from other critics, um, they'll start to feel like they can suspend their own, um, their own doubts and their own critical minds and just get into the conversation because someone else is, 
taking care of the critiquing. Or you make them critics and you make it a constructive role for them to play in the conversation. And they feel heard and they are forced to listen. And again, you're changing their dynamics. So little things like that can make a big difference. Like I feel there's a big superpower here. Like you're always saying that you're a tech guy. Um, like you haven't used one acronym or, or um, you know, a high level definition, which is uh, clearly a characteristic of someone who's very tech oriented. So like, I'm wondering how, how like, how do you, like you're articulating like, like super not a tech guy. So like, I'm really interested in that for a second. How do you do that? I think uh, a lot of reading. So even when I, again, I was never fully um, a, a programmer, if you know what I mean. I, I was good at it. My, my brain was fully engaged when I was doing it. Um, but I, I've always had a very curious mind and I've always done a lot of reading. And I think um, you might be assuming I mean business books and how-to books and never. I, I never read any of those kinds of books. I was a big reader of science fiction and fantasy um, and, uh, and historical fiction for some strange reason because I hated history in, in high school, but I love reading about historical uh, stories and you know things like Genghis Khan and Julius Caesar. And it, it just gives you a different vocabulary and a, a different way of kind of expressing life. So, you know, on the one hand, you've got the mathematical brain. And on the other hand, you have the brain that's drawn to liter literature and reading and, and uh, ideas. <clears throat> and um, I, I believe a lot of language skills come from just reading, uh, if, you're re if you're reading the right books. Um, and uh, and talking and having great conversations with people. If I read The Hobbit and I'm a tech guy, that's it. I'm done, right? <laughs> I think you should read The Hobbit and maybe a few other things. But, you know, just to give you another example, my, my daughter, I've got a daughter who's 11 now, and uh, we actually have two older daughters as well. So, so she's quite a bit younger than her two older sisters. But since she was born, whenever we watch TV, we have closed captioning turned on. So... All the TV watching she's ever done has come with like words at the bottom of the screen that are showing her the spelling um, and the actual words being used. And so sort of you're being entertained at the same time that you're, you're um, learning and you have no idea that you're learning. It, to me, like there's a lot to that. Uh, there's a lot of development in activating reading, you know, as, as a core skill, uh, just like listening um, and, and just like kind of puzzle solving, like those are, those are three different things. And if you're constantly flexing those muscles, I think you can, can really make yourself very well-rounded. And, um, I'm wondering like when you started advising companies, like how did you end up, uh, working with the fortune 500 ones? Well, I mean, a lot of that is David Komlos's superpower of being able to convince people to take a meeting. Um, he, you know, he's great at creating some doubt. Uh, in people's minds that, you know, if, if you don't listen to what I'm saying, you're going to miss out on something that's really important to you. Um, but as you get into those companies, I, I characterize myself as a bit of a systems thinker, um, uh, I, I, which I, I never really understood until I started um, recognizing patterns. When, when, you, when you look across industries, because we work across industries, when you look across corporate cultures, when you look across the geographies you work with, um, you can see patterns. And when you start to see patterns, you can pattern match. So you can be talking to a company you've never worked with before. 
they can be, you know, the CEO can be telling you a challenge he or she is having with um, the dynamics of the executive suite, of the C-suite. And, and you can say, well, you know, that's, I, I don't know your company, but I, in several companies I've seen that sort of dynamic and here's what was going on. And all of a sudden you seem like um, you're, you're a magic eight ball or something able to give answers without very much uh, input. And that does a lot to build credibility and trust when you're able to sort of um, abstract what you're seeing and tell people the patterns that they match with and, and what were done in those other situations, it, it starts to be very insightful and powerful for them. Yeah, that makes sense. And then like, do you feel like, do you, do you identify like uh, very common patterns between uh, different companies? Yeah. So for example, uh, I think this is fascinating. When, as we apply the formula, one of the, one of the steps in the formula is about the group setting its own agenda. So you give them a question and then you put them through an exercise, a, a meaningful half-day exercise to take the question and find consensus on what the topics of discussion are that they, that they have to have. So every time we apply our formula, starting with a question, no matter where we apply it, the group has to come up with a set of topics they're going to discuss. Now, having done this since 2002, when you throw all that data, all those data points of all the topics they've ever chosen into um, you know, a good analysis what we found was that there were actually 23 subject areas and that's it. Looking at thousands of topics from across companies, industries, et cetera, there were only 23 things that um, 23 subject areas that they needed to cover to find answers to their questions. That pattern um, we then built into a tool that we call the predictor, which allows us to talk to other companies, um, answer some questions about the challenge they're facing pattern match with past applications of the formula and produce um, sort of a set of subject areas that they likely need to cover. And, and so, uh, you know, because we're neutral, because we don't come with an agenda, because we're not trying to sell a CRM system as a result of working with us or a long implementation uh, project, we can have a lot of credibility in serving up patterns um, and, and letting organizations see themselves and their challenges through a very abstracted lens. Yeah, that sounds really impactful. So do you feel like uh, this is a big question, uh, so brace it, brace there, but uh, do you feel like you find it, found your uh, life's passion? Oh, yeah. Uh, before before uh, starting to do this in 2002, I had never remained um, in any position for longer than three years. Um, and that's because I always um, stopped doing things that stopped being fun. So in any other job I had had after two or three years, I felt like I had cracked the nut. I had learned what there was to learn. I had solved whatever puzzle I needed to solve. Um, and yeah, I could keep going and growing within this organization. Um, but, you know, there was always that constraint of being in the four walls of that organization doing what it did. Um, this has been very, you know, again, to, to someone like me, it's been a chance to solve new problems constantly. Um, to see new patterns, to expose myself to new companies, new situations, new people, new cultures. And, um, you know, there's no reason I can imagine that I'd ever stop doing this. And the last few years have been about trying to translate the experience <clears throat> into experiences I can share with others through books and, and writing. And that's just created a whole nother level of happiness and contentment with what I do. Do you remember like the minute when you realized 
this is it. This is what I want to do forever. I think it was the first time that, you know, we had done the whole cycle of selling what we do and then seeing it through with an important client um, and watching the process, the, the formula work and hearing from the client about the experience of the formula. Um, I, I realized, wow, that, you know, this is powerful. This is fun. Um, this suits what I do. I, you know, and feeling that feeling of, you know, maybe I was meant to do this. Maybe this is kind of what I've always been looking for. And it's interesting as we, as we recruit people, you can see in the person almost the minute we start talking to them, if they hear the music or not. And if, uh, and, and when people hear the music, they recognize what we do as something that, you know, others are not doing. And um, we have people who've been in the company almost as long as I have been, uh, who just, you know, would say the same thing I just said, which is like, what else would I do? This is, this is what I was meant to do. What a rush. Yeah, it's great. Fantastic. It's like, I can't, I can't wish for anybody more than that. I mean, besides health and everything, but I really feel like, you know, when, in Maslow's pyramid, it's like, it's the ultimate situation to be in, to, to just know you're in your place and doing good for others. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, if you think about the, the pandemic and <clears throat> social distancing, what I found is it, it's been a great opportunity to sort of step back from the usual day to day and look at the patterns. And, um, you know, we're in a situation, we're in an unprecedented situation and the, the chance to create and to innovate um, and to think new thoughts and, you know, respond to new stimulus. I, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity as much as it's an enormous burden and um, comes with like significant challenges to all all avenues of life. Um, it's also like, how often do we get to do that? To, to sit back and reflect on life, on what we do, on why it works, um, on what we want to do and on what we could be doing, um, given a whole set of new opportunities that are opening up in front of us like daily. Yeah. It's like confronting us with ourselves and having, making us ask questions and maybe, maybe applying the formula without knowing it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Getting us that quiet time, which is so key to, to cracking any problem. And also taking away the FOMO. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. Like for me, when I was, I was in it, um, uh, on that note, I was thinking to myself, you know, why is it so quiet and why do I have so much time to think and micromanage and all kinds of th stuff like that? And then I decided that, you know, um, that what happened is, for me at least, it was not having um, a FOMO fear of missing out. And that's what led me to be, be so still and think and, you know, micromanage because it actually took away all the pressures, you know, that, that, by the way, they are so, you know, they're not important, but those pressures that external ones, yeah, that for me, that was like the, the biggest insight I had there. Yeah. I like the word that you just used, stillness, right? Like that we all have a, a superpower between our ears above our shoulders, right? And, um, you know, it can be trained to do the day-to-day -day and to navigate the usual same old stuff and get really good at it. Um, but how often do we sort of give it time to, to do what it's also meant to do, which is to pull pieces together, to surface insights, to, um, you know, absorb new information. And, and again, I, I feel like, 
I've spoken to a lot of people who have found that this time has has really transformed the way they think about their own work and um, how they'll approach that work going forward. Like, what could be more exciting than that? Yeah, yeah, I think there's so much good. So, David, what would you say your superpower is? I I think um, it's that ability and interest and passion for problem solving, um, coupled with the ability to listen really well. And, um, you know, and, and if I think about the things that have really advanced my business and my career, it's been the ability to take in stimulus, store it away somewhere, and fire up a pattern, you know, when the final piece presents itself to me five or six years later, just kind of having your brain ready with um, all sorts of different kinds of information so that when the last piece of information enters, you can, you can suddenly see what it is you've been trying to see. Um, I think part of that is how you're born and, and some of that comes from doing the right things like reading and, you know, going through a, a computer science training and learning to apply logic um, and then the other, sorry, um, the other side of me is, um, is the expressive, again, curious, but, but wanting to be able to share what I'm, what I'm hearing and thinking, um, and finding the voice to do that effectively. That probably was always a power and I think has become more of a superpower, um, just through, through the practice of writing, continuously writing. And maybe I'll add that another superpower is helping hone superpowers and helping others find them out. Yeah, uh, that's, that's a lot of fun. Um, and it's a different challenge altogether because then you're dealing with what worked for you and trying to apply it to people who are wired differently and trying to help them find what works for them. Yeah, I can totally understand. It's, it's in a very different sense what we're sort of trying to tap into by doing this podcast uh so you know just speaking to you that sort of makes me understand a lot of things um and just uh, and just how much it's exciting to to figure out um a, a path to your inner self yeah good i'm i'm, I'm glad and then like the inevitable question what would you say your kryptonite is um because because I am so stubbornly optimistic about people and circumstances, I don't like being let down. I I don't like um, you know I, it's not crippling. It's not kryptonite in that sense, but it, it it really hurts to have your assumptions about people betrayed by by their behavior. Uh, it doesn't happen a lot. Um, not enough to kind of throw a, a wrench into your belief in people, but when it does happen, you know, it probably feels like Superman feels when encountering kryptonite. So are you working through that? Yeah. I, you know, you, you just stop surrounding yourself with people who let you down. Um, and, and I think, so for example, when you're recruiting, I think, um, you can pattern match and, and you can really trust instincts that you have about the person in front of you, not fully, uh, not exclusively, but when you sit down with somebody to start to talk about 
them and how they might fit in your organization. If you have this nagging doubt that there's something off that's not going to work, I think as you get deeper into your career, you be, you begin to recognize that you can just trust that. Yeah, which is like again what you do uh, at a at the holistic level anyway. Yeah, exactly. So, David, where can people uh, get a hold of your book? Uh, it's available on Amazon. Um, you can come to our websites, integritygroup.com. Uh, there's links to all the different ways to buy the book. And there's also links to a lot of articles. Um, we've been very actively writing. We're Forbes contributors actively writing about um, some of the kind of new thoughts and insights that are happening for us as we go through the pandemic. I, th I think there's... You can just look at the headlines and decide which articles are interesting to you. There's, there's a lot of interesting stuff that I think we're thinking about, but we're also interviewing a lot of in, uh, interesting people and continuing to stimulate ourselves with their thoughts. So I think there's probably something for everyone if you just go visit our website. Well, I definitely advise that people do. Do you have any final message for people now going through COVID uh, and maybe could somehow make use of the formula? Yeah, yeah I think... Um, Don't lose hope. Be stubbornly optimistic about, um, about the opportunities that are available to you right now. Um, give yourself time to think. Pay attention to the things, to the silver linings, to the, to the bad habits you've broken as a result of being forced out of them. And uh, don't let yourself revert to who you were before this. Um, because I think it's been a time of very positive change for people if, if you're open to that. And um, the last thing I think you want to do is just go back to normal. Hmm. What wise words to end this with. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Oh, it's been my pleasure. And I hope maybe we can do this uh, sometime again. Thanks for your time. Anytime. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Real life. Superpowers. Superpowers.